The ushers are going to come forward and receive the offering this morning while I share with you some interest. Dave, thank you very much. Yesterday, today, forever. How many remember that one? Yeah, I love that. A lot of information in your bulletin. Make sure you read it carefully. I say that every single week. It's almost like a recording, but it really is true. It wouldn't be there. We need your help in a lot of areas. Vacation Bible School is coming up, one of our largest outreaches, and that will be near the end of June. Teachers meeting this Wednesday night for that. Summer help for Wombaland and Upstreet. Need a lot of help there. I got to believe at some point or the other, someone helped you out as a young person growing up, developed your relationship with God or helped you do that. Or maybe somebody took care of your kids while you heard about God. And now it's your opportunity to do that as well. So if you can help, we would really appreciate that. You have no idea. I happen to be married to the children's director, so I get it. I understand that a little bit more. But you have no idea what it's like every single Sunday to have her wait on the way in, looking by the phone, waiting to see who's going to cancel and how many holes she has to fill. So if you can help us out, we would appreciate that a lot. Everything else is in there. Please read it carefully. We don't want you to miss out on anything. Been gone for a couple of weeks, and I'm glad to be back. We're back in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Going to combine a lot of that information this morning. I hope you've read up on it. Shared it with you yesterday on Phone Tree and uh, been in it, but I want to catch you up a little bit. At some point or the other, all of us will go for a major checkup with a doctor. And when you do or when you have, I got to believe that you want him to be honest with you about everything, right? I mean, you want him to say, tell me the truth. You want to know, am I going to make it? Am I going to live? You don't want him to walk in and say, hey, your cholesterol is 587. Don't worry about it. Eat whatever you want. You'll be all right. A number of years ago when I was in the hospital, my heart was racing 220-some beats a minute. I did not want him to say, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. Because I knew it wasn't. I wanted honesty. You as well as I do, when you go to a doctor and have an overall major checkup, wanting to tell you where you're doing well or what you're doing well, maybe some things you can improve on. And you certainly want him to be honest enough to say, you're taking some risks here. They're going to cost you a lot. Ultimately, it could cost you your life. And I'd want to know that, so I didn't take those risks. You want a good marriage exercise. Ask your mate, how am I doing? No, seriously, how am I doing? Am I loving you like Christ loved the church? Am I respecting you as a husband? Am I treating you well? Am I treating you like the queen you deserve to be? If you want a really good marital exercise, you ought to every once in a while ask your mate, be honest with me. How am I doing? If you want a good parental exercise, ask your kids. How am I doing? Right? I mean, how am I doing as a parent? Am I, am I doing well as a mom? Am I setting a good example for you as a dad? Would you want to be a dad like me? Would you want to be a mom like me when you grow up? I mean, how am I doing? That's a really good parental exercise. And in that, you certainly want your kids to be honest. Mother's Day was last weekend, right? Not a one of you got a Mother's Day card saying the last 20 years stunk, but I had to give you a card anyhow. Right? I mean, it all said you're wonderful, you're awesome, you're the best mom on the planet. On and on the list went. But you want them to be honest with you. You want somebody in your life to say, I love you. I really do. And you're doing some amazing things. You've got some room for improvement, which we all do. If there's anybody in this room that doesn't have room for improvement, I'd love to meet you after the service. I will buy you dinner. 
We all do. You really? <laughs> You're on. We also want to have somebody be honest enough with me to say, you're, you're going down some dangerous paths here that are really going to hurt you. And I love you enough to tell you that. And, and sometimes that may not always come across that way. Right? When, when you talk to your kids, I love you, but they don't feel loved at the moment. But you want somebody in your life to love you enough to say there's some things in your life that you're doing that I'm concerned about, and I want to help you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in Revelation 2 and 3. He's walking into a number of churches, seven of them as a matter of fact, so many different commentaries on so many different views of all of this, seven stages of a church's life, seven stages of a church history, and now we, the American church, are in Laodicea, we're neither hot nor cold, Jesus is sick of us. None of that is true. There's no way, America never fits within the context of Scripture. We'll claim that, and a lot of people do that. He's talking literally to seven churches. But out of those seven churches, there's some really powerful things that we can learn when we look at what he wants to teach us so that we can say, okay, how am I doing and how are we doing as a church? If you were to assess us, I know there are things we could do better. I know there are things maybe we're not doing well at all. And if you were to have somebody to assess your life, you'd certainly want the same. That's what Jesus is doing here. Sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, but it can be incredibly freeing, even in the midst of it being scary. It can be really freeing. You can have somebody that loves you enough to tell you the honest truth, and you can breathe a little bit because you know they know, and they really want to help you. That's exactly what he's doing here. He looks at churches and said, there's some things you're doing well, some things you could do better, and things that I'm really nervous about. Incredible lessons a few weeks ago that God has to teach us in this context. He's completely aware of what we're going through. He knows exactly what to say and when to say it. We as men don't always do that part well. Wrong time. We don't always do that well, but he knows exactly what to say and when to say it. Second thing, he shows himself in incredible ways. Through music, through the Word of God, through a friend, through a stranger. Hebrews says, be careful that you entertain strangers unaware. You never know when you could be having an angel right in front of you and somebody walks away. When we travel, I always pray for angels. Number one, I want them to be in the plane with the pilot. I, want them to, I don't care what that guy thinks he's doing. I want to know that God's driving that thing and flying that thing and landing it and, and all of that. But I've, I've, all along the way. TSA gets a bad rap, and I get that. They haven't always helped themselves in some way. I've been blessed out of my socks with some great TSA people that God just happens to open up the path in front of me. One, one time I was going through the screening, and of course, you know, you check in your luggage, you have all these things that you carry on, and my wife says to me over and over again, no weapons in there, right? No weapons in there, right? I'm going, nope, nope, it's clean. I walk through there, and she said, sir, can I see your bag? I'm going, oh, great. So she opens it up, and she said, you got a knife in here? And I said, I'm so sorry. And so she takes it out and says, uh, you know, you got to get rid of this. I said, okay. She said, there's another one in there. I said, oh, no, ma'am, there can't be. You know, there can't be. Well, sir, there looks like there is one. She opens up. She pulls out this thing this long. Now, I'm just, I already put my hands behind my back. I'm just waiting to be let off somewhere, <laughs> you know. And she says, uh, hey, you know, if there's, a, there's a little post office right over there inside the airport here. If you just put that in an envelope, mail it to yourself, that'd be no problem at all. Just go right through here when you're done. <laughs> I'm going, thank you, Jesus. You know what? 
Never know when God's going to provide an angel. He speaks in incredible ways. You know, sometimes we look for the powerful. We, we look for those awe moments when God speaks to us sometimes in just quiet, wonderful ways. And if you're always looking for those awe moments, you'll miss it when he does. Number three, John learns to never give up no matter what. I doubt if this guy thought he would spend the end of his life on Patmos. I mean, he's one of the most well-known theologians, writes a lot of scripture. I doubt he thought that was going to be the end of his life. And for some of you, me, who are getting older, we're not really sure how we're going to end up. How we're going to end up emotionally, physically, and geographically, or even literally where we're going to be. What I love about this is God says, look, I know exactly where you're at. I know what you're going through. I'm right there with you. And for some of you who are older who really do not know, I mean, the, the plan for all of us is to what? Live at home till we die. We just want to sit there eating food and then go. You know? Wake up in bed and then go to heaven. No, no, I guess it would be the opposite of that. Go to bed, wake up in heaven. I mean, that's the way I'd want to go. My grandmother was 80-some years old, came from Yugoslavia, wonderful lady, uh, near the end of her life, her husband had already, my pap, grandpa had already died, living with my aunt. It is not what she wanted. I am going home. She said it in very broken English. I am going back to that farm. I'm going to walk if you don't take me. Helen said, fine, I'm going to take you. So she took her home, went down the next morning, and there she was sitting in a rocking chair, gone. All she wanted to do was be home. I get that for all of us. Believe me. I, 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 just, I love 231 Becker Road, man. I always want to stay there the rest of my life but you don't really know. What I love about this is God says, look, I know that, and I'm right there with you, even in the middle of that, what you didn't think you would be. Finally, you see his incredible love for the church. Jesus loves the church. And it comes in with an honest assessment. Ephesus, I love you, but you lost your first love. You're so involved. You're so busy doing a lot of things that you forgot about that relationship that we once had. It was wonderful. It was passionate. It was intense. Couldn't wait to get in the Word. Couldn't wait to get with people. You wanted to grow in your faith, and then somewhere along the way, it just kind of got modeled up, and now it's all about activity, and the passion is not there. Like in a mass marriage, when the fire and passion are gone, you end up just going through the motions. You cannot let that happen in married life. And I said a couple of weeks ago, please, for the sake of the next generation, don't let that happen in your married life. Save me a lot of counseling. To the church of Smyrna, look, you're going to go through some really difficult days. I just want you to know that. We Americans have been so blessed, incredibly blessed. But there are people all over the planet, more have died, you've heard this phrase, I'm sure, more have died in the 20th century with the cause of Christ than in the first 19th centuries combined. And sometimes we forget that, and we look at this church. He said, look, I need you to know, I am the one who died and rose again. And they needed to know that, that there was indeed life after death. And you and I need to know that. When you're sitting with a loved one who you know knows Jesus, you want him to go to glory, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're going to see them again. I get so frustrated visiting funerals every once in a while and hearing a priest or a pastor talk about some grand reunion in the sky and we'll all see one another again. Without Jesus, it's not true. But I love the fact that when we know Christ, that's why Paul said, look, you don't sorrow like those who have no hope because their hope is in Jesus. 
And when we die and we leave this world, like David said, one breath here, the next breath in glory. That is an incredible promise. And he comes to this church going through such deep waters and says to them, I've been there. I know. Let me just give you a little glimpse of what's on the other side. I've often found myself asking the question that I finished with last week, or two weeks, three weeks ago, I guess now. Could I handle that? If I really tested for my faith, could I stay strong? Because as I said when I ended, hard times really reveal genuine faith. And the deeper you get in your walk with God, the deeper entrenched you are in your relationship with Jesus, the more you're able to handle all of the uncertainties of life. Because I'm telling you, life is incredibly uncertain and very unpredictable. Jim Dobson, at the end of his book, When God Doesn't Make Sense, a book about this thick, they call kinds of stories, and I'm thinking, okay, man, come to a conclusion. His conclusion is this. You won't like my answer, but my answer is this. Somewhere in your journey with God, you've got to separate your understanding, your trust in God for your understanding of what he does. Because there will be times you won't understand what he does. You won't even like what he does. But your trust in him has to be unwavering because he will get you through if you hold on to him. He comes to the next two churches in Thyatira and Pergamum with, with blazing eyes. Look at what he says in verse 18 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. You're doing more than you did at first, but I need you to know you're going down a dangerous path. You tolerate that woman, Dezebel, who calls herself a prophet, but her teaching misleads my servants into sexual immorality. He goes to the next church who identifies himself as that sharp, double-edged sword, Thyatira, and he said, look, I, I know where you live. You, you got Satan has his throne there. You remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith, but I've got a few things against you. You have some among you who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, which is compromise. He taught Balak to entice the Israelites and ate food sacrificed to animals and committed sexual immorality. He comes to these churches in almost all the cases, except Philadelphia that one packed a little bit next week and said, look, you're doing some really good things. And he, and he recognizes that. But he says, I need you to know you're on some really dangerous soil here. You're going down some dangerous paths, and I want you to know that. What I love is verse 19 that I'll get in a moment when he said, I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing this because I really love you, but you're going down a path. You've got some really good things here, but you're going down a path that's going to take you backwards. You know, you started out so strong in your faith with God, you're walking down that path as our missionaries overseas call it, walking on the Jesus road, and you're, you're more and more in love, and you're growing in your relationship with God. And then somewhere along the way, you, you start going backwards, and you're not always looking backwards, but then you, you almost turn around and go the other way. Th things like, and these are what I have in my notes, could be a thousand other things, and I get it. You know, it's been a long week, and, you know, when the week's over, I'm tired. I just, I just got to go and just have a few. I mean, not that many, but I, I, I just need to have a few to kind of unwind. And then they become more and more. It, it, it's, only, it's, it's only a few coarse jokes. I'm just trying to fit in. You know, I don't want to be the odd guy out. Yet, yeah, the movie was a little trashy, 
But the plot, it was really good. I just wanted to find out where it was going to go. You see, it's so easy to get caught into the trap. And the more pay-per-view trash we watch, the more we end up bowing down to the temple of Jezebel, which was wicked idolatry. And at some point, we've got to decide which God we're going to serve. You see, the more we compromise, the more numb we become to the tug of the Holy Spirit who said, you know, you ought not to do that. That's not healthy in your spiritual walk. That's not a path you want to go down. That's not things you want to say. That's not things you want to watch. The more numb we get to the tug of the Holy Spirit, who is the one that points those things out to us, the more we end up compromising. And the more we compromise, the more danger we're in of ending up like the church of Sardis in chapter 3. Everybody thinks you're okay. They see you on Sunday and they assume everything's okay in your relationship with God, but I know the truth. And you're borderline close to being dead. What's interesting in these two sections of Scripture, he always identifies himself, but fascinatingly enough in those first two, and I want to be careful because I don't want to look at, look at you and make you uncomfortable, but he says, I'm coming at you with those blazing eyes. And that sharp two-edged sword that kind of opens you up and lets me see the real you. Now, I've often said in my counseling ministry, the eyes are the window to the soul. And I can, it's been fascinating in the 40 plus years that I can read more just looking into people's eyes than, than I could by what they tell me. And it's interesting when I see this, he uses that phrase, I'm coming at you with those blazing eyes and, and I want you to look at me. I want you to see honestly what I'm seeing here. And I'm really concerned about that because if not, you're going to end up like this church, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, this is the words of him who holds the spirit, seven spirits of God. I know your deeds. You've got a reputation of being alive. But to be honest with you, you're dead. You've got to wake up. You've got to strengthen what's a risk to remain and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in my sight. Remember, therefore, what you have received and what you heard. You knew what you started with. You knew where you were, and you remember that? Remember what it was like when you first found me as Savior? Remember that? You're, you're, you're not holding on to that. You're going backwards. And if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief, and you'll not know what time it is when I'm coming to you. The primary indictment here seems that although they appear to be spiritual on the outside, well, that everyone else sees God, who knows the truth, sees in the inside, and he says, I want to be honest with you, I don't see life at all. You're sitting in a pew, you're singing the songs, everyone around you thinks you must be okay, but God, who knows the truth, says you're not. You're lulled into such a false sense of security that you're spiritually asleep. Wake up, strengthen what remains, he says in verse 2. In my last church, there was a lot of guys that worked outside in the winter. It was in Potter County, and it was cold all the time, like 18 months of the year. We, we couldn't wait for summer. It was in July, and that was it. And it was always, seemed always that way. And, and I always knew when the guys were building houses outside and when they were building or finishing houses inside and when they were building houses outside because there were three guys that I could look at every single Sunday morning after being in the cold all week long. They came in on Sunday morning, and they're gone, man. You ever been elbowed like that? You just, you know, you know somebody's trying to wake you up. When I, when I grew up, we always had to sit with my parents. When we started going to the Alliance Church, sit in that pew where Tammy is, and we had to sit with them all the time. And I said to mom, come on, seriously, all the teenage guys are in the back. Can't we just sit with them? Mom says, okay, go ahead and sit with them. So we did. We're back there one Sunday. 
I've got a buddy, my brother and I are on each side of this guy. And he's watching, he's paying attention, paying a little bit more or less attention. Then all of a sudden the arms go up like this. And he's like this, right? So what do my brother and I do? Naturally, we're on one side and the other side. We take his elbows, pop them out. His head bangs on the pew. That was the day they had wooden pews. Head bangs on the pew. I'm awake! You know, he's out of the He's waiting for an altar call because you might as well give one there. Guess what? We did not allow to sit with them anymore. <laughs> God walks in and says, hey, 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 wake up. You're, you're lulled into a false sense of security that you think just because you're in church and everybody else thinks you're okay, you know you're not. And, and I, I know what I see. I know what I see. I'm coming back and you're not ready to face me. He would agree with what James said as we finished that series a few months ago. Don't just tell me about your faith in God. I just want to see it. Because faith without evidence is dead. You don't earn salvation. It is a free gift from God. It cost him everything. I said, I think it was in the, maybe it was this service a few weeks ago. Just one of those, you know, all, all kinds of ways to heaven. Jesus is the only one way to heaven. That is so not true, it's not even funny. But I'm telling you this much. There is no way on the planet that God would do what he did to his son, putting him through the torture and agony of all that went on up into the cross, and then the cross himself, if coming to faith in God and getting to heaven was multiple choice. There's only one way, and it's in Jesus. And it cost God everything. It cost him everything. And what I want us to understand, what he wants us to understand, is he paid the ultimate price for our salvation, and he gives us every opportunity in the sun, or under the sun, to grow in our relationship with God. He said, I don't want you to take that for granted. I want you to continue to walk on this path and grow deeper and deeper in love with me and your journey with God. Now, this passage of Scripture is also used as one of those to discuss the issue of eternal security, and I'm not going to unpack that. I know some would love for me to do that. I'm not. We've been arguing about it for 2,000 years. I'm not going to solve it in two minutes. He says in this, in verse 5, he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I've got a few people in Sardis who haven't sold their clothes. They walk with me. They're dressed in white. They're worthy. I'll never blot, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life which we've all heard the phrase, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you write your name in the book of life. That ends up begging a question, would there be an incident where he would block out my name? The text doesn't say, so I'm not going to say. Are they redeemed? Are they part of the body of Christ? Are they believers? Are they saved? They're in a church. Well, obviously, being in a church doesn't make you a believer any more than living in a garage makes you a car. There are a lot of followers of Jesus who weren't necessarily disciples of Christ. In John chapter 6, he is saying, look, I need you to know what it's going to cost you to be a follower of me. I'm going to tell you the truth. It could ultimately cost you your life, but I'm telling you it's worth it because of what I know I have on the other side. And a lot who heard that said, man, that's too tough for me, and they walked away. I mean, literally walked away. They were disciples of Jesus. They were followers of Christ, and they just walked away. He looked at the few that were there and mostly the 12 and he said are you leaving too and Peter said where would we go you have the answers to life in Mark chapter 4 he gives one of the most famous parables a parable of the soil and he explains it to his disciples who never seemed to get what he was trying to say to them and he said look the, the seed I'm sowing is the word of God and when it happens somewhere along the way it's sown 
And then as soon as they hear it, the enemy comes along and takes it away, and they just don't receive it at all. And others receive it with a lot of joy, but it never takes root. And when trouble or persecution comes, like the church that I mentioned a while ago, because of that, they end up falling away and walking away. Others hear the word of God, they understand it, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, thinking they have everything they need without me, they, it comes in and chokes it out, and it never, ever lasts. One question that usually comes up in this discussion, can I lose my salvation? I don't believe you can. It's not like losing your car keys. But Jesus is very concerned here and in chapter 3 about their spiritual condition because their behavior doesn't seem to indicate there's any genu genuine relationship with God. And Scripture is pretty clear that you'll be able to tell which ones are followers of Christ by the lifestyle they live. You'll be able to tell which ones are mine. Now, of course, the other side of this issue is a lot of people live in fear that if I mess up somehow, I'll lose my relationship with God. And Scripture very clearly says nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. I had a bunch of guys that I used to camp with in, in, in Couch, and we would camp out on the weekend, and one of them, Nick, came to me and said, well, Reb, going to weekend to camp again, get saved again. And I said, you're going to what? He said, I'm going to get saved again. You know how at the end of camp, everybody sits around a campfire and we all get saved again? I said, Nick, I just need to explain to you what this is all about. He said, well, I know I messed up a lot and I'm afraid I, I'm, that's not the life you want to live. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But what he wants is us to continue to walk on this path of growing deeper and deeper in love with him. Both theological stands, whether or not the, the Arminian view that teach you can walk away from your salvation or the Calvinist that says, well, if you walk away from your salvation, you were never saved to begin with, they both have holes in them. But if it's impossible to fall completely away, then Peter and Paul wasted a lot of time, and so did James, reminding Christians that you've got to be really careful because you're on a path that's leading you totally away from where you once started. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. Your stumbling cannot separate you and I from the love of God. But when it comes to being apathetic or dead sitting in a pew, I can't always tell. I certainly know that it doesn't look like the life of God lives in him. Well, how do you know that? They signed a card. They raised their hand. Scripture indicates there's so much more to it than that. There's a lot of people who have a marriage certificate but certainly don't seem like they have a marriage. And my concern is sometimes with evangelicalism is at times we get people to believe that all they need to do in their journey with God is say a prayer, sign a card, or raise their hand, and that's all there is to it when there's so much more than that. That's just the beginning of a relationship with God. You better believe you've got to acknowledge that I need a Savior, that Christ is the only one, He's the only way, and I admit my sin and I receive Him, and I, I confess that. I raise my hand or I sign a card that says that I do that. But you never want it to stop there. And if you've got a believer or a friend who's only done that, you want to help them continue on this path with God, not assuming that all they ever had to do was do that and they're good and live any way they want to. The scripture doesn't indicate that at all. There's so much more than that. One of the things that I look at when I see this section of scripture is those blazing eyes that had to look at Peter when he felt he failed Jesus miserably and just simply said, do you love me? Do you love me? That's what I want to know. I, I want to know whether you signed a card, raised your hand, or said a prayer. What I want to know, do you love me? Because this is based on a love relationship. 
When you understand what I did, what I offer, and what you received, I want that to be the beginning of a wonderful relationship. There's a phrase in our culture that says perception is more important than truth. Truth is always the most important thing. You never want to take your eternal life for granted. But you notice verse 19, he says, I'm telling you this because I love you. I really am. I'm not, I'm disciplining you because you're going down a path that's going to kill you, but I'm doing that because I really genuinely, honestly love you. And I have to tell you that. He comes to the final church, and I'm only going to unpack it for a minute, but there's something I want to bring us to, which is the one that we're probably most familiar with, that church of Laodicea. He says, I wish you were hot or cold, but neither one. And because of that, you kind of make me sick. And and we've often equated that at times with God saying, I really want you to either be on fire for me or completely cold in my voice. But it most likely refers to the healing springs of the area where Jesus said, I want you to either be healing or refreshing. I want you to make a difference. I want your life to be influential on those around you. I want them to see that I really have made a difference in your life. It's not by what you accumulate in that section of Scripture. It's by what you have in me. And then he finishes with probably one of the most famous verses in Scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, many times when we hear that verse, we're equated with this picture that many of us grew up with. This one here. I don't know if you all had it in your home. Uh, a lot of us did. What's interesting about that picture is that what you're seeing here is the hen's side of the door. Now, supposedly the artist did say, I did it this way so that there is no knob on the other side, but he's standing in front of what could be the knob. So you don't know for sure exactly. The intent of this section of Scripture is not to an unbeliever, this is me, to an unbeliever that says you need to open your door to Jesus. Yes, you do. If you're an unbeliever, you need to open your, he's not going to invade himself into your life. You need to let him in. And that is absolutely true. But he's writing this to believers, to church people, not to non-believers, but to church people who at one point had a relationship and now have none at all. A number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. Incredible. We walked the shores of every area of Israel with one of the most brilliant minds I've ever been around. His name is Brian Woodman. He was in a, with us in a small city and talked about that verse and the intent and what we evangelicals have said about that verse forever. And he said, I honestly believe that that verse was written around the marriage relationship. How many of you saw the royal wedding yesterday? Oh, come on, admit it, I did. <laughs> I'd love to go to that bishop's church. The guy that did the message I would love to go to that guy's church. He was awesome. I got to believe they did not expect to hear that kind of gospel. You can see Elton John going the whole time, um, which was um, a whole other sermon. A anyhow, he said, I, I honestly believe the, um, the intent of that verse is in the marriage ceremony. And the bride goes away and prepares the bridal chamber. And the groom comes and knocks at the door and said, I want to come in. I want us to have an intimate, wonderful, incredible relationship with you. 
that as it was designed to be with the groom and the bride as the church. That's what I want. So I want, I want you to invite me in. I want to have that kind of relationship with you. Not where you're walking away or walking back or losing what we once had. That's what I want. When Jesus shared this experience with the disciples in the upper room, he said, this bread here is where you get life. It's my body given for you. It's where you get life. The cup that he passed out after the meal was over said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. No longer sacrificing bulls or animals. I am giving myself so that you can have life. And so the only way now you'll receive forgiveness is accepting me. And your sins will be washed away, completely away. When he's talking to his disciples, he said, this is the last time I'm going to share this meal with you until I share it again in the kingdom. And what I honestly believe he's referring to is that, that I just mentioned to you out of Revelation 3.20. It culminated in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the last few chapters of Revelation. It's an incredible portrait that Jesus paints that he wants us to have with him. Not a mediocre relationship with God or thinking I'm in just because I sit in church, but I want to have a wonderful relationship with the God of the universe who loves me like crazy and draws me in and wants me to grow in my relationship with him, knowing I'm not going to be perfect at all, but I'm going to move along this road and continue to grow, who loves me enough to say, you've got some areas in your life I'm really concerned about. And so when Paul repeats all of that setting, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, same night Jesus betrayed, took bread and a cup and talks about all of that. And then he said, but before you eat the bread and drink the cup, I want you to look inside. I want you to make sure that the pathway is clear, that you're not going down a path. And he really puts it within this context. And I believe, as I, I couldn't believe that we were going to celebrate communion when I was here in this context of Scripture, to have you and I have an opportunity to spend some time with Jesus saying, are there areas in my life that I'm going down paths that are going to really hurt me? And you know it. Help me. So talk to him. You have a great marriage. I mean, Connie and I, are st we still laugh at the fact, 45 years together, we still have this much fun together. It's incredible. And, and if you have one of those, you know how, how incredible it can be. That's what he wants us to have with him. And in this meal, it's just a symbol of what he's done, what he offers, and the love that he has for us and what he wants for us in our path with him. To talk to him. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for those blazing eyes. We can't escape them. Thank you for your spirit that kind of comes in and lets us see inside. We don't want to miss that either. And so, Father, in these next few moments, as we hold these emblems in our hand to remind us of your love for us and the sacrifice that you gave for us, help us to hear your voice, hear ours, as we begin to unpack our relationship with you and maybe some areas that you're concerned about. We want to correct those now so that we continue on a right, good, solid path. The communion stores are going to come. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're welcome. There's no rule here that you can't partake if you didn't do anything. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you didn't, you can receive him now. Admit your sin, invite Christ into your life. You'll notice that everything is in the same tray, the bread and the cup. 
And if you could take both while it's being passed, help those around you, and then just hold it for a while and spend some time with Jesus, then I'll come back up and we'll share it together.
Father, the word love is used in so many different ways, but I don't think it could ever be defined in any better way than what we hold in our hands. And so we receive your love, your gift of grace that offers us everything. We thank you for it. In your name we pray. Share the bread and then come. Again, Father, we thank you for your word, the opportunity to share it together, to learn from it. Help today to be more than just simply an exercise and receiving your word and listening to a sermon, but help it to be an honest, genuine understanding of where we're at in our journey with you so that we become more and more of what you want it to be and how you defined it and designed it to be, because it can be incredible. We thank you for allowing us to hear your word this morning and for being honest out of genuine love. In your name we pray, amen. I can pray for you in any way. Love to do that. Next weekend, pick right up. You don't want to miss the first one in June. See you then.